Any and all views expressed on the devil and the details are entirely my own. While I am a member of the Church of Satan, I do not speak for the Church of Satan. Welcome to The Devil in the Details, the show where we talk about skepticism from a satanic perspective. I'm your host, the satanic skeptic. While I was reading over the morning news for the newsletter I co-write for the Center for Inquiry, The Morning Heresy, I came across an article talking about a recent podcast, Hoaxed, hosted by Alexi Mostras and Tortoise Media, talking about a case from back in 2014. The case was the usual conspiracy theory nonsense about satanic pedophile cults, this time in the UK, specifically Hampstead, London. Now, what caught my eye about this case was that it was two years before Pizzagate and the 2016 presidential election in the United States, both of which gave birth to QAnon. Now, It's no surprise that accusations of satanic ritual abuse never went away, even after the mainstream media stopped paying attention and the satanic panic died down. Just because the coverage of the satanic panic went away, it's not like the people who genuinely believed in cult crime and satanic ritual abuse changed their minds. But what's unique about the Hampstead hoax is that it seems to be one of the first cases of satanic ritual abuse claims going viral online and inspiring committed believers to do something about it. Again, years before Edgar Madison Welch would storm Comet Ping Pong Pizzeria with an assault rifle thinking he was going to liberate trafficked children from a satanic pedophile ring. Now, I'm not going to make the claim, gee, maybe if we had taken the Hampstead hoax a little more seriously, we could have prevented Pizzagate. Hindsight is 2020, and I doubt anyone could have predicted either Pizzagate or the rise of QAnon. But I do think it's important to have an understanding of the historical and cultural context in which events happen. So, in that sense, the Hampstead hoax certainly does serve as something of a precursor to Pizzagate. The information presented in this episode primarily comes from the Hoaxed podcast series and the blog, Hoaxted. Alexi Mostros and Karen Irving have done a fantastic and thorough job researching and presenting this case. I highly, highly suggest everyone go give Hoaxed a listen, and be sure to check out the blog Hoaxted. I've also verified the information presented from these two sources with news articles from that time, as well as publicly available court documents. Our story begins in London on September 4th, 2014. Ella Draper, a Russian immigrant living in Hampstead described as a yummy mummy who taught yoga, and her boyfriend at the time, Abraham Christie, a health food guru obsessed with everything hemp and a small-time criminal with approximately 50 arrests and 36 convictions to his name, primarily for assault, forgery, fraud, and abusing his own children, had just returned from a vacation in Morocco with Ella's two kids, pseudonymously referred to as P&Q, ages 7 and 9. Upon arrival in London, Christie took the children to the home of Jean-Clement Yauhereau, his brother-in-law, and a special constable with the London Metropolitan Police. 
For three hours, the children told Jean Clement they had been sexually abused, along with many other children, by a satanic cult operating out of their school, Christchurch Primary. Specifically, it was said that babies were supplied from all over the world. They were bought, injected with drugs, and then sent by TNT or DHL to London. The assertions were that babies had been abused, tortured, and then sacrificed. Their throats were slit, their blood was drunk, and cult members would then dance around wearing babies' skulls, sometimes with the blood and hair still attached. All the cult members wore shoes made of baby skin produced by the owner of a specified shoe repair shop. Children, it was alleged, would be anally abused by adult members of the cult using plastic penises or willies. Although Christ Church Primary was the location the cult allegedly operated out of, at least seven other local schools were named. Rituals were performed, so it was claimed, in an upstairs room at a McDonald's restaurant, where the boss would let the cultists sacrifice babies and cook them in the ovens within a secret kitchen, to later be eaten by cult members. I guess that's where the McRib mystery meat comes from. Notice the eerie similarities between this and similar claims around Comet Ping Pong in uh, Pizzagate, namely that a restaurant is implicated as being a place out of which sex trafficking of children is taking place. Now, what's important to note is that before the kids, P and Q, shared their harrowing story with Jean Clement, they had been recorded by their mom and her boyfriend in a series of videos recorded on their smartphones. Perhaps most disturbing of all, in the videos, the children alleged that their father, Ricky Dearman, was the aforementioned boss of the cult. They also named their older half-brother, various teachers from their school, the priest at the adjacent church, a large number of named parents of the special children who were victims of the cult, social workers, children and family court advisory and support service employees, and police officers. In total, the list ran to 175 people. Jean Clement made a recording of what the children discussed that night, although the reality of the situation was that uh, the parents, uh, Ella Draper and Abraham Christie, did most of the talking. The next morning, Jean Clement brought these recordings to Scotland Yard and showed them to Detective Inspector Cannon, instigating an official criminal investigation. The investigation began when P&Q were brought in by the Metropolitan Police for a series of Achieving Best Evidence interviews on September 5th. Two more interviews would later be conducted on the 11th and the 17th. On September 8th, the children were taken by the police on a drive around the area in an unsuccessful attempt to identify specific locations where abusive practices had occurred. On September 10th, Detective Sergeant Fernandez and Detective Constable Martin visited and inspected the interior of the church adjacent to Christ Church Primary. No notice had been given of their intended arrival. They had a good look around the vestry, including within the drawers where the priest's vestments were stored, searching for material to assist in their inquiries. Ultimately, they found nothing of interest to the inquiry. There was no secret rack room in the school, nor was there any corroborative evidence whatsoever found at any of the other sites. None of the other children whom P&Q had named as having been abused by the cult when interviewed by police made similar accusations. Some of the sites the children had given as locations for abuse simply didn't exist, and none of the Metropolitan Police officers the children had named as being members of the cult existed. During the September 11th interview, the case took an unexpected turn when P revealed to police that Christie had hit them before, prompting police to place the children under protective custody. As their story began to fall apart, 
both children recanted their previous statements and confessed they had been coached into making the accusations by Abraham Christie and their mother, Ella Draper. The motive? Both petty and simple. Draper had been embroiled in a custody battle with her ex-husband, Ricky Dearman, and both her and Christie schemed that this would somehow help them win their case. Apparently, they didn't think about the fact that police might, just might, be interested in a little something called evidence. After it became clear that her children would not be returned into her care, Ella Draper began legal proceedings in November of 2014. On the 10th of December 2014, at court, she dispensed with her legal team, instead choosing to follow the counsel of two people from an organization called the Association of Mackenzie Friends, which, for those of you like me who are from the old United States, a Mackenzie Friend is a support person for self-representing litigants. They offer prompts, take notes, and generally give advice in court in England and Wales, North Ireland, the Republic of Ireland, New Zealand, Canada, and Australia. Now, the part I find most remarkable about this is that a Mackenzie Friend does not have to be legally trained or have any professional legal qualifications. In this case, the two Mackenzie Friends who came to the aid of Ella Draper were Sabine McNeil and Belinda Mackenzie both of whom were already online conspiracy theorists actively campaigning against the judicial system for conspiring to force adoption of children. We'll talk about them in greater detail in a minute, but for now, let's stick to the case. Since Ella Draper had chosen to represent herself in court, she was granted access to the confidential material pertinent to the case, including the Achieving Best Evidence interviews between her children and police, as well as the list of 175 alleged members of the cult. So, of course, she shared this information with her two Mackenzie friends. Sabine published an online petition directed at the Home Secretary at the time, Theresa May, threatening that if the children were not returned to their mother, Ella Draper, then she would take her case online. When the petition was ignored, Sabine sent the videos of the children and the list of alleged members to Henry Curtis, a conspiracy theorist who runs the TAP blog. Mr. Curtis published the videos, which quickly went viral on the internet, and the Hampstead hoax became a nationwide and later international sensation. The Honorable Justice Palfley, presiding over the case, issued a court order demanding both Ella and Sabine remove any and all material about the case from the internet but by then, it was too late. Both Ella Draper and Abraham Christie fled the country, abandoning their children, and have evaded the law ever since. The story of the Hampstead hoax, however, does not end there. The two chief adjutants of the case, Sabine and Belinda, continued to make headlines after the perpetrators were long gone. Sabine McNeil fled to her native Germany, but later returned to London and was promptly arrested. In 2016, she was tried for witness intimidation and issued with lifetime restraining orders intended to prevent her from continuing to broadcast illegal and false claims about people she alleged were in the cult. This didn't last long. Three months later, Sabine found herself back in court and pleaded guilty to violating the restraining order, receiving a suspended sentence. Later, in November or December of 2018, McNeil was convicted of four counts harassment and stalking and six counts of, yet again, violating the 2016 restraining order. In her judgment, Judge Sally Cahill said, The direct consequences of your actions is that for the four families concerned, you have ruined all normal family life. Their children have been unable to attend school normally and are either homeschooled or have to carry tracking devices and alarms. 
The families have escape routes planned in case of attack. Mothers have slept on the floors of their children's bedrooms to protect them. They have had to move homes. They have had businesses ruined as a result of being unable to have an online profile. As if that's not bad enough, for the children, they will never, as things stand at the moment, be able to go online and put in their own names without seeing the vile filth that you have peddled over a period of years. The allegations were of murder, cannibalism, Satanism, and sexual abuse. They could not be more serious or vile. The children's lives have been blighted forever. In my judgment, you are an arrogant, malicious, evil, and manipulative woman. During McNeil's trial, Belinda McKenzie was arrested and charged with contempt of court in relation to publishing the name of a witness in the McNeil trial, contrary to a court order. Belinda McKenzie was found guilty and received a suspended sentence. These two are not alone. Since the hoax began in 2015, at least seven other people have been arrested and charged variously with stalking, intimidation, harassment, and contempt of court. What is unique about the Hampstead hoax is that, unlike most historical cases of alleged ritual abuse, where the accusations are the result of either so-called recovered memories of past trauma or the products of a genuinely disturbed mind, the accusations here were motivated by pure greed and rapacious self-interest with no regard for the well-being of the children. Now, of course, this isn't the first case in which children are coached by their parents or caregivers to lie and give false testimony in a custody battle. However, in this case, the accusations were particularly bizarre, and had they not played into conspiracy theories involving corrupt courts, government cover-up, and so-called satanic cults, the case likely wouldn't have attracted the attention of folks like Sabine McNeil and Belinda McKenzie, and consequently, had those two never become involved, the case likely never would have attracted the media attention that it has, and we wouldn't be talking about it here today. What is so unique about these two, and what can they teach us about similar activists in the QAnon movement? Sabine McNeil and Belinda McKenzie are probably the most interesting figures in this story. Sabine Kurja McNeil is a native of Germany who claims to have previously worked at the European Center for Nuclear Research, that's CERN, as a systems analyst and software diagnostician from 1966 to 1979. Unfortunately, I was not able to substantiate that claim. She claims to have emigrated to London in 1981, and at some point she suffered a serious car accident which caused her to become an event organizer, web publisher, online activist, and software designer. According to her LinkedIn page, her educational background is a bachelor's degree in mathematics and computing from the Technische Universität Darmstadt, although she brags that after her accident she studied psychology and ended up organizing international conferences and seminars. After reading through numerous online posts that she's made, I have not found any more detailed information or concrete examples given, nor have I seen her name come up in association with any such international conferences or seminars. While her claim might be entirely true, as it stands, it's unsubstantiated. Curiously, Sabine's LinkedIn page has her experience as web publisher listed from 2013 to 2018, specifically in relation to the Association of McKenzie Friends. However, in a YouTube video, her and Belinda McKenzie discussed having met for the first time in either June or July of 2011 as McKenzie Friends for a Nigerian couple, Joseph and Gloria Musas, who'd had their children taken away from them after more than a decade of documented abuse. Now, to be clear, Sabine McNeil and Belinda McKenzie were on the side of the Mooses. 
they were fighting for the parents to keep custody of their children under the belief that the courts, the justice system, was conspiring to take them away. In the video, Sabine explains how she came in as a web publisher. I set up the website for the Musis without them even knowing because I just had all the material. This is corroborated by a document published by the Association of Mackenzie Friends in which Sabine again states that she built a website for the Musis. Belinda Mackenzie is a less exotic but no less interesting person than Sabine. According to her LinkedIn page, her educational background is that of a master's degree in Oriental languages, specifically Japanese, which was granted in 1968 from St. Anne's College, Oxford. Through the 1980s, she was a research assistant for the Department of Oriental Antiquities, British Museum, and later as a liaison for Kinkyusha Igo Center, Tokyo. From 1998 to present, she claims to have been involved in various charity work involving the expatriate Iranian community, international truth community, as well as child protective work. In a YouTube interview with Derek Farrell, Belinda talks about joining the UK truther movement in the wake of 9-11, becoming, as she calls it, an investigator, a truth activist, and truth campaigner. Most of us would call her a 9-11 truther and anti-vaxxer. That's another form of child abuse that she believes she's fighting against, mandatory vaccinations. There's a two-part interview with Belinda on YouTube in which the interviewer, Derek Farrell, asks her, you're involved in something a bit deeper, aren't you? To which she replies, it's deep because a lot of it is covered up. It's global. It's international. Now, of course, human trafficking and child abuse is an international problem, and it's very real. Of course, people who are very rich and very powerful have been directly or indirectly implicated or accused or found guilty of pedophilia and child abuse. Jeffrey Epstein is probably perhaps one of the most famous examples. But that's not what she's talking about. If it was, I wouldn't be talking about Belinda McKenzie on this show. Belinda McKenzie is talking about the belief that there is a highly organized, wealthy, and powerful international community of satanic pedophiles who are abusing and trafficking children, a belief for which there has never, not once, been found any shred of forensic evidence in, in support. To go back to Mackenzie's claims of, of charity work, she has a long history of involvement with failed or highly questionable charity organizations. As she said, she was involved in an organization called Iran Aid. However, no information on this charity is available, as it was closed down in 1998 by the Charities Commission for England and Wales after refusing to allow its accounts to be inspected. Millions of pounds of donations disappeared into a foreign bank account, and all the charity records were conveniently destroyed in a fire at its offices. Records from the Charities Commission list her as the director of a charity called Knights and Angels Foundation, founded on June 12, 2014, and having been dissolved on April 12, 2016. According to her LinkedIn page, the Knights and Angels Foundation was supposed to be a charitable incorporated organization in process of being set up with objects to empower those helping victims of injustice, violence, abuse, etc., especially children and vulnerable adults. Curiously, on Belinda McKenzie's LinkedIn page, she's listed as the chairperson for the Association of McKenzie Friends from February 2012 until the present. Further curious, 
the association doesn't seem affiliated with any other professional organizations of McKenzie Friends. Neither Belinda McKenzie nor Sabine McNeil are listed as members of the Society of Professional McKenzie Friends, and on McKenzie's Twitter, several links to mckenziefriends.co.uk lead to a domain that's up for sale. An organization launched in 2019, Children First UK, that's childrenfirstuk.net, not to be confused with childrenfirst, with the number one, dot org dot uk, is likewise mentioned by Melinda McKenzie in her YouTube interview with Derek Farrell. Given her history with Aid and the Knights and Angels Foundation, I would argue that it's highly probable that both the Association of McKenzie Friends and Children First UK are organizations that were started, at least in part, by Belinda McKenzie for the express purpose of raising funds for her activism. This would, of course, not be a problem if there wasn't good reason to believe that any funds donated would actually be put to good use, and if both Belinda McKenzie and Sabine McNeil didn't have a history of financially complicating court cases and engaging in harassment and rumor-mongering. If it wasn't already clear that folks like Sabine McNeil and Belinda McKenzie are dangerous, Child Protection Resource provides a nice little warning for those looking to enlist the services of similar McKenzie friends. There is a small but significant group of people who purport to be McKenzie friends, but who act in ways that are extremely damaging to the litigants in person interest in family court proceedings. This is largely due to the belief expressed by these individuals that the family justice system is corrupt and, for example, operates according to targets to steal children from loving families. These individuals not only cause distress and damage to the individuals unlucky enough to receive their assistance, they also cause public money and court time to be wasted, and also have a much wider and chilling impact on public confidence in the system due to their additional activities of campaigning, both on the street and via the internet. For example, note the hearing in February 2016 reported in the Law Society Gazette that Sabine McNeil and Belinda McKenzie avoided incurring costs of £2,000 for their misconceived application for judicial review within care proceedings. Both are heavily involved in other family cases where their attempts to assist parties have had negative consequences for both the individual and the proceedings. Although Ella Draper and Abraham Christie were simply liars and grifters, I personally believe that both Sabine McNeil and Belinda McKenzie, much like many believers in QAnon, genuinely believe they are fighting against an organized cult of child abusers. They really believe they are actively engaged in a battle of good versus evil. This makes them especially dangerous, as was the case with the Satanic Panic and the witch hunts hundreds of years before that when people are blinded by a sense of righteousness, by an absolute conviction that what they're doing is just and good, they become either ignorant or dismissive of the harm their actions may cause. When Sabine McNeil and Belinda McKenzie side with parents who are indisputably guilty of child abuse and neglect, it's because they've bought into the narrative that the legal system is so corrupt and everyone else is the enemy that they don't consider the consequences of their actions. While I absolutely agree with the idea that, as skeptics, we ought to engage with conspiracy theorists in good faith and treat them with empathy and respect as is due, 
I would argue in cases like this where the actions of conspiracy theorists have a harmful effect on others, particularly children, that we must invoke the second half of the Patrick Swayze rule my friend Kenny Biddle is so often fond of quoting. And if you don't know what that is, then go see the movie uh, Roadhouse. To wit, that we should be nice until it's time not to be nice. The involvement of children is just such a time. If you like this episode and you want to hear more, you can check out The Devil in the Details on Spotify, Apple Podcast, Amazon Podcast. Manifest this episode into your podcast app of choice. That was a quote from my friend Paul Fidalgo that I really liked. So this is something new that I've never done this before, but if, if you want to join the fight against misinformation and pseudoscience, and if you're listening to this podcast, you really should, because... Just last week, the husband of the Speaker of the House, Paul Pelosi, was attacked in his own home by a guy wielding a hammer who allegedly authored uh, blogs espousing QAnon and other conspiracy theories. And since then, uh, individuals such as Donald Trump Jr. and Elon Musk, although he has since deleted the tweet, uh, have been pushing related conspiracy theories that Paul Pelosi and his attacker were actually... um, gay lovers, which the police have said, you know, unsubstantiated. So these people are dangerous, okay? There, there's never been a more important time to stand up for truth and facts other than now. So please consider donating to the Center for Inquiry, the parent organization for the magazine that I write for, Skeptical Inquirer. You'll be supporting me and the show by proxy. The, the show's fine. I produce the show entirely at my own expense, and I don't ever expect to make a dime on it. But I really, really encourage you, for just $5 a month, you can get advanced invitation to events hosted by the Center for Inquiry, pre-sale tickets and special discounts, and you'll receive the quarterly newsletter Free Thought in Action. If you can spare $10 a month, like me, you'll get all of the above plus, plus both the digital and print subscription to either magazine of your choice. Free Inquiry, the magazine for humanism, atheism, and all those living without religion, or Skeptical Inquirer, the magazine that I write for, which is committed to science, skepticism, and investigation. If you have any questions or would like to shoot me a line, you can reach me on Facebook at The Devil in the Details. My handle is Satanic Skeptic. Maybe consider subscribing to the podcast, liking the Facebook page. You can also check out the articles that I write for uh, Skeptical Inquirer at skepticalinquirer.org. Or for more pop culture-related skepticism, you can check out the articles I've written for aiptcomics.com. Until then, the devil of doubt calls forth mankind to challenge all things, question all things. May the Luciferian light of reason guide you on your way ever forward. Hail science. Hail reason. Hail Satan.